We know that about movements, that people always go after the moderate members of their own side first, right? Like if you're a communist, you want to kill the Trotskyites before you want to kill the capitalists, right? You want to purify the movement. I think that's just so self-defeating for anybody who really cares about change. The one thing I say to my students all the time is, you tell me whether you want to make noise or whether you want to make a difference. Because it's really easy to make noise. You can draft a bill that's pure and makes you feel great, and it is never going to get passed, ever. But if you want to make a difference, then you build a coalition, you follow the data, you make some compromises that are not inimical to your principles, and you know what? You're going to get to a better place. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is Paul Ollinger. How are you? It's a great day to be alive. Thanks for sharing your day with me. Let's get smarter together. We're going to do that today by talking to a gentleman named Charlie Whelan. He is a professor of public policy and economics at Dartmouth College. Dartmouth College up there in Hanover. Well, the smart kids go. He's a professor up there. He's also the author of several books including the book that caught my eye. It's called The Centrist Manifesto, which is an appeal to all Americans to put country over party and try to fix our biggest problems together. Before we jump in there, I want to say hello to the new members of the Crazy Money Podcast listeners group. They're on that Facebook thing. Hello, Kate Caruso. Hello, Bruce Dorsey. Hello, Kathy Jurowitz. Thank you for being here. Please binge as many of these episodes as you possibly can, just like Kate did. She got like 1% smarter in an afternoon by listening to three or four episodes of Crazy Money while doing yard work, apparently. You should do the same thing. Tell all your friends to do that, too. All right. What's with this two weeks in a row political theme, Ollinger? What's that all about? Well, I'll tell you what. I think, I don't know why, but just in the past four months, I felt a real compulsion to get smarter about political issues. I've been searching actively for people that could help me think through how to approach the world. And what does this have to do with happiness? Well, I'll tell you, listening to the increasingly polarized voices on either end of the political spectrum has made me unhappy. I know that the people that we're hearing from these days more and more are not out to solve the solutions of our country, of our society. They're out for themselves or for their own little sliver of the population. And I think we can do better than that. And that's why when I heard about the book, The Centrist Manifesto, I was like, oh, I want to know what a smart person who is both very empathetic to the needs of the most disadvantaged people in our country, but who also realizes that math is math. And at a certain point, you can't tax people 100%. And at a certain point, there's only so much money to go around. So how do we spend that to create the strongest government, the strongest infrastructure, the strongest social programs that are going to be the kinds of social programs that excuse the dated trope, but teach a man to fish as opposed to giving him a fish. And that's why I was excited to learn about Charlie Whelan and the centrist manifesto. The Chicago Sun-Times describes Charlie thusly. He combines a razor-sharp mind with a boatload of charm and impressive expertise in economics and foreign policy. As I said, he's a professor of economics and public policy at Dartmouth. He's also the author of several books, including Naked Money, Naked Economics. Uh, There is no nudity in either of those books, unfortunately, Charlie. Let's see if we can get the next issue of those to be a little bit spicier. And, of course, The Centrist Manifesto and several others. His passionate teaching in courses on education policy, healthcare, tax policy, and income inequality have earned him the honor of being named 
one of Dartmouth's 10 best professors by three different classes in just nine years. As importantly, Charlie is also the founder and co-director of Unite America, a movement of Democrats, Republicans, and independents. That's what I am, by the way. Working together to put voters first by fostering more representative and functional government. He knows a bit about this, not just because he studied, but also because in March 2009, Charlie ran unsuccessfully for the congressional seat vacated by Rahm Emanuel, who went on to work as President Obama's chief of staff. Charlie is a graduate of Dartmouth and holds a master's from Princeton and a PhD from the University of Chicago. So he's kind of smart. He's a smart guy. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Charlie Whelan. Charlie Whelan, welcome to Crazy Money. Good to be with you. Charlie, you grew up in Chicago in the 1980s, a world that many of us experienced through films like Risky Business and John Hughes movies. To what extent was your experience as a kid consistent with those portrayals? Well, I actually went to the same high school as John Hughes, and I spent some time in the Breakfast Club. I was suspended during the week, not on the weekend, but I did go in that small room. What'd you Um, do? First of all, I was not guilty. (laughs) Of course not. Which character in The Breakfast Club would have been most similar to who you were in high school? Wasn't one who was exactly like me. In college, I was in the fraternity that was Animal House, and I was the responsible guy, the only responsible guy in the house as things went around. I can't remember which character that was, but I was the one trying to hold things together. Well, I assume you were a pretty good student at Dartmouth when you were in college because you went on to get master's and PhDs and things like that, generally not given to the Blutowskis of the world. Correct. I did manage to hold it together. I wasn't terribly consumed by grades. And now that I'm teaching at Dartmouth, I try and emphasize to my students that getting a B plus or an A minus is not going to ruin their lives. But that's a harder pitch these days. Why do you think that is? I think there's this erroneous perception, and it begins with the college admissions process, that life is some kind of race, that we're pitted against each other, and there's one path, and whoever gets along that path faster wins. Like, you ring a bell at some point, and again, college admissions, and we can talk at length about how broken that system is, reinforces this notion, because some people get in, some people don't get in, and if you don't get in, the lesson is, wow, I shouldn't have gotten a B plus, not well, maybe this isn't the right spot for me. Students then carry that mindset into college, which is really the beginning of a completely different process, which is exploring what's interesting to you, figuring out what you're good at, what you're not good at, taking risks and so on. I view part of my job as a professor as kind of disabusing them of the high school test-taking mentality, getting them to think more holistically about the opportunity that education provides. But man, there's a lot of baggage there that I've got to overcome, including often their parents and other social forces that are saying, look, you kind of win life by getting the highest grade point average. And that's a tough thing to push against. What courses do you teach at Dartmouth and what do you want your students to get out of them? Obviously not the A plus grade that they're seeking, but what kind of ideas or processes do you want to stimulate in their brains? Well, let's take it in reverse order. I try not to teach anything that they won't remember at their 10th reunion. There's a famous, <laughs> no, it's for real. Like, Price elasticity you know, of demand. Come on, let's go. Right. No, it's true. Like, But once you know elasticity, you'll never forget it. It's just how much one thing moves relative to another, right? <laughs> right so right, yeah. heroin is less elastic 
than say yogurt. You know, the price of yogurt goes up. You're like, okay, I'm not going to buy some today. Or gotta give me, gotta give me some yogurt. Up, you know, a price of opium goes up. You're like, I gotta, I gotta get my stats. Like you won't forget that. You don't have to be able to describe the full terminology, but the point is like, why in the world would we spend a lot of time discussing something that you're, we have a midterm tomorrow by coincidence that you're going to forget by next week. What's the point? And so we tend to talk about the concepts, asymmetry of information, adverse selection that sound very daunting, but once you understand them, you'll never forget them. So that's kind of what motivates my teaching. And just one little side note here, we've talked about the fact that I went to Dartmouth. I did an exercise before I came back to teach. I did an inventory of all the classes I took. I had to take 35 classes to graduate because we were on quarters. There were probably 10 or 11 classes that I would say changed my life. They changed the way I thought about things. I was in discussion with people who were so different from me that it changed my worldview. They enlightened me as something that I was good at or I didn't want to do. They were life-changing classes. Then there were probably another 10 or 11, another third that were neither here nor there. They were fine, like language classes and other things where I learned things, but they weren't life-changing. And then when I went through this exercise, the last third, I could not remember. Like I, there, were, <laughs> there were another 10 or 11 classes like, okay, if you don't give me my transcript, I am not going to know what these classes were. And that had nothing to do with your time at Animal House. <laughs> well... I was more likely to skip the classes that had no resonance with me when I went to So it, there's a correlation there. So when I went back to teach, I thought, all right, well, I need to not teach these classes. People will be unable to remember that they took and try and do more of the teaching that has this lifelong impact. I'll start with one class I teach that nobody's ever going to forget. Every fall, I teach a class with only 12 students where we travel, we study some topic on campus for 10 weeks, and then we travel to the place of study. So I have taken students to the jungles of Colombia, to Liberia, to Northern Ireland to meet with participants in the peace process, and the students are responsible for writing a memo at the end of the trip with specific policy recommendations that are based on whatever our course of study is. And, you know, if you've sat down in a room with someone who's in the IRA and effectively admits to having killed somebody during the troubles, you ain't going to forget that. Right. We're going to get to the concept of centrism and completely related to that is the concept of polarity, right? And the beef from the right about college campuses today is that faculties are dominated by liberals who are teaching students what to think and not how to think. How do you bring the concept of how to think into the classroom? Well, I think that criticism has a decent amount of validity. Like, just as a matter of math, you can look at the composition of college faculties, and they don't look like America. They're way skewed left. That is and probably always will be the case. That's not necessarily a terrible thing. There's just a lot of self-selection going on in that people who choose a life of the mind with, you know, don't want to be in a lot of meetings, don't care about making a ton of money, relatively bright, they're going to migrate towards academe. And the same reason, it probably shouldn't deeply concern us that the military is going to lean right because you're going to self-select in this, that kind of profession. So as a first order, this isn't terribly troubling. I do think from where I sit that I think the humanities, less politics and more narrowing of the discipline 
have become spoils, probably too strong of a word, but I do think that they've become so political that students who don't want that political experience may not decide to choose to major in English. And I don't think that's because there's not an inherent interest in it. I think people we're generalizing at a high level here, but I think people in the humanities will say, well, our classes are less popular now because students are so vocationally minded that they're taking econ so they can get a job. And I just don't think that's true. My sense is that students really want to engage in big questions. They want to talk about income inequality. They want to talk about race. They want to talk about the effect of history on the present. And that's what literature has always done. But if then you go take a class and it's only one political viewpoint and you have to read a great book through some Marxist criticism lens, you know, leave aside whether that lens makes any sense or not. It's just not an experience students will seek out. So I do think we can do a better job about restoring the vitality of the university without necessarily changing the kinds of people who go into teaching, because they don't think we're ever going to be able to do that. How do you do that in your classroom? And, and do you have to monitor for students who are looking for you to slip up and say something that might violate whatever political narrative you might be addressing in that class? So knock on wood, I have not had any trouble with that. And I think part of it, again, is a self-selection effect. The people who select into public policy, which is the department in which I teach, are looking to engage. They are not arriving thinking they have the answers. They really want to learn about tangible things like Medicare and the environment. So I start, I think, from a slightly easier place. There are things I do in the class not to like protect me or prevent people from being triggered or what have you, to just explain why reasonable people are going to have reasonable disagreements. And in fact, one of the things we do early on in the class is this thing I call kind of the hierarchy of disagreement. Like what are the four reasons that people disagree over anything? And number one is they just have a different worldview by virtue of faith or background or nationality or some other lived experience. And so your worldview may be very redistributional, that you feel that rich people have an obligation to pay for poor people, you know, to fund things so that they don't live on the street. But it might also be that your worldview is more liberty-oriented, and you don't believe in that. And you know what? We're not going to reconcile that. There's no blood test. There's no multiple choices. And so the point I try and make is, if there's a disagreement that's a number one, we need to just acknowledge that and move on. You know, think about abortion. At bottom, abortion is a disagreement about when life begins. And if you believe it begins at conception, and I don't, okay, well, that's kind of the end of the discussion. I mean, we can, we right. can talk about other things, yeah, yeah. you know, about whether birth control or will reduce the number of unintended consequences. But we just have to acknowledge that we've kind of reached a clash of worldviews. And by the way, we don't have to yell at each other. Like, that can be a perfectly respectful discussions like oh you happen to be catholic i get that i'm not so to go right through the rest of the hierarchy number two is just a difference of agreements over facts you know is it raining outside and we might have to agree on how we're going to agree like part of what's wrong with fake news is we've lost that ability to reconcile the number twos you know i say it's not raining you say it is raining historically (laughs) that would have been a fairly easy thing to ascertain You know, number three is different interest. You know, I I don't want the new airport because my house is near the airport. That's 
a totally different kind of thing. And number four is a more esoteric one, which is differences of agreements where there is a right answer, but we don't know what it is. So, for example, should we have invaded Iraq? A lot of people say no, but we don't know what the counterfactual is. We never know. Maybe Saddam Hussein would have got weapons of mass destruction. So we may yell at each other forever because we'll never know what the alternative path was that we didn't take. So, you know, by focusing early on, on having a constructive discussion, it's remarkable how well that helps. Like you get to a point and people, you know, people will say respectfully, oh, that's the number one. Right. Well, we just disagree about health care here because we disagree about the degree to which we should subsidize care for those who are lowering. All right. Well, we're done here. But what you've done is you've kind of reached a point where the political system has to resolve that difference. But there's really no reason why you have to yell at each other or be disrespectful. Wow, that sounds positively quixotic. Charlie, I mean, that's... Uh, <laughs> it seems to work in the classroom. What, what kind of we fantasy of world do you live in? <laughs> Hanover, New Hampshire. Yeah, well, that is a bit of an island. It's certainly relevant to the call for people to compromise. It seems to me that at least part of your mission, at least in your writing, is to make the complicated issues of economics, statistics things like monetary policy, understandable, if not to the common person, then to non-academic people. How did you come to this as a mission for your work? I came at it through a number of prongs. First is it just turned out that I have an interest in public policy. I didn't necessarily realize that my interest was in public policy when I was in college because there was no program then that people would describe as public policy, but I was interested in peace in the Middle East. I was interested in homelessness. I was interested in things that I would later recognize as public policy. And then I became interested after the fact in the tools that help us understand those kinds of situations. But I was only interested in them, including the economics, to the extent that they give us intellectual traction to deal with those problems. So I have no patience for esoteric math or for curious formulas that someone might find elegant just because the theory is beautiful. And the question is, is that going to help me now in the problems that I care about? And of course, that partially forced me away from the more technical discussions because the technical discussions are the ones that are more prone to be esoteric. But then, and let's be honest here, I also discovered that I'm not very good at math <laughs> and, and therefore, but I'm really good at explaining things that you could also explain with math. I had two epiphanies. One was in math camp when I was in graduate school and the TA was trying to explain why the sum of an infinite sequence will converge to a finite number. Sure. Which is basically, which means, right, that she's trying to explain why something that can go on forever, infinite, is actually finite. And like, at this point, my head's exploding. Like, if it goes on forever, it's not finite. But of course, the kind of series she was explaining is, okay, one plus one half plus one quarter plus one eighth plus one sixteenth. So numbers are getting smaller. Is that the limit of zero? It converges to the limit of two. That last term converges to zero, but of course, everything preceding it to it sums effectively to two. So what we're trying to understand is how can something that goes on forever effectively be equal to two? And finally, I just, the light goes on 
And I turned to this guy, still remember his name, Will Warshow. And I said, Will, imagine that you're two feet from the wall. And every time you move, you move half the distance to the wall. So you move one foot, then you move six inches, then you move three inches, then you move an inch and a half. That series of movements is infinite. But the distance that you're going to travel is effectively two feet. Like you get closer and closer to the wall. So your, your infinite movements eventually converge to two feet, which is, you know, you'll be almost at the wall. And like, he got it. I got it. We never figured out the math. But I discovered the two things that we started with was one, I can explain things non-mathematically. And two, all I care about is solving problems. So I really don't want to go down the rabbit hole of esoteric math. That image you put in my head of the wall being a finite distance away and making infinite moves. That is also coincidentally the Atlanta Falcons red zone strategy. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you very much. I just came up with that. And along those lines, your writing is actually very funny. Not like slap your knee, pee your pants funny, but there is a great deal of humor woven into your book. Is that all just for you or is that to help them make the reader enjoy the reading more? It's both. It starts out just for me. And by the way, my teaching style was the same, but I don't ever start out a two-hour lecture and say, this one's going to be funny. I'm going to make jokes. I have <laughs> right. no jokes. All right, right. But it's just like little things that you say that are kind of droll or whatever, or you set up the humor because something is a bizarre image of something. So it starts out as something to get me through the material. <laughs> right, right, right. And it turns out that the readers and students also happen to appreciate it. And I think, I hope in the end, that it makes it also more memorable and therefore more impactful. Well, like the wall metaphor, it, it makes it easier to latch onto. Like you can really, oh, that's what he's talking about. I get that. Yeah. And I think we all learn in different ways. In some ways, I've made a silk purse out of a sow's ear by being bad at math in a discipline that tends to reward people who are good at math. But of course that also means that I'm a little more unusual and that people who are not good at math, most students don't certainly gravitate towards math, appreciate the fact that I'm able to explain this in a way that's not the conventional approach. You've written many books, including Naked Money, Naked Economics, Naked Statistics, and the one that caught my attention is called The Centrist Manifesto, which is an argument for more centrist-type political policies to solve the world's problems. And one of the reasons why I found it refreshing, and by the way, it was written eight years ago, so congratulations on solving all the polarity in our, poli- <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> in our political process. But it's so easy for people on the fringes to take one kernel of truth and turn an entire argument in one direction. Like Rand Paul, for example, who is an enemy of the Federal Reserve, which you go into great length in explaining in Naked Money. So give me an example of how Rand Paul uses what might be true in a tiny little portion of his mind to distract from the bigger issue of what the Fed does for us as a society. I think in the case of Rand Paul and the Libertarians, and his father, of course, who also created all kinds of problems in Congress for the Fed, is to take a very important theory, which is they care a lot about liberty, and then to say, okay, the Federal Reserve, by virtue of producing a currency and doing things to maintain the value of the currency, somehow tramples on our liberty. And to some extent, that's just a philosophical argument. Like, what can I say to face that down? Like, 
yes, I guess the fact that the Federal Reserve exists and has the authority to buy treasury bonds on our behalf, this does impinge on your liberty in some way. But it is also true that being in a country with a stable currency and prices that don't fluctuate radically and a currency that is not likely to be counterfeit, like these are all really powerful and important things for an economy, many of which you realize when you travel in a country that doesn't have those things. If you've been in a place that has hyperinflation or where you can't tell whether the currency is legitimate or not, where prices are bouncing all over the place. So I think that's one where you take a view that makes sense on the surface. Yeah, liberty is great, but you then use it in service to disparage an institution that actually has performed admirably, is crucial to a capitalist economy, and I would argue did a really good job during the financial crisis to keep us from getting to a point where the ATM machines don't work. So I would say that's one where like, they're not saying anything that's not defensible on some level. It's just that when you add it up, it just isn't a very pragmatic approach to governing 330 million people. In a similar manner, the purist libertarians would say we never should have bailed out the banks, right? That markets should be allowed to run unfettered by the government and that the biggest bank should be allowed to fail. But there would have been massive consequences for that. Right. And, you know, they're completely correct in the sense that there is some moral hazard there. We were talking earlier, I teach my students about moral hazard. You behave differently when you believe that somebody will protect you from making a mistake. And the banks certainly will lend more recklessly now and in the future if they think that there's some cushion there. Countries will borrow more recklessly if they think the IMF will bail them out. You may park your car in a place that isn't safe and where you wouldn't park if you didn't have car insurance. So, again, it's just like the Rand Paul example. There is some truth there. But it is also true based on every person I respect who was close to the financial crisis, including Judd Gregg, senator from New Hampshire, who was right in the center of it. I'll tell you a story about that in a second. If we had not acted aggressively, even at the risk of creating more moral hazard in the future, the global financial system could have melted down to a point where our modern economy wouldn't have been recognizable. And so let me tell you the Judd Gregg story. He's former senator from New Hampshire. He's very gracious with his time. He's come to speak to my students every year for six or eight years. And he told a story. He was either the chair or the ranking member of the budget committee and therefore in 2008, when things were going really south after the collapse of Lehman, he was summoned to the Capitol by Ben Bernanke. Judd Gregg had been at a black tie event. He was in his tuxedo. He goes to the Capitol. It's Judd Gregg, Barney Frank, Nancy Pelosi, another Republican or two, and the Fed chair, Ben Bernanke. And as Judd Gregg told the story to my students. He said that Ben Bernanke did not exchange any pleasantries. He just told the assembled leaders, if you don't do something by the opening of financial markets in Asia on Monday morning, the global financial system may collapse. So then I used that anecdote in Naked Money. But of course, I wanted to verify the story with Senator Gregg. So I sent him an email said, look, I'm about to write that that you were told by Ben Bernanke, if you didn't do something by Monday morning, the global financial system may collapse. He wrote back very tersely, said, no, 
What Ben Bernanke said was, if we didn't do something by Monday morning, the global financial system, all caps, will collapse. Right now, that's a very strong statement coming from a conservative New Hampshire Republican. So back to your point. Yeah. If you want to be a purist, you are creating moral hazard. But we might have been fighting each other in the street over a scarcity of (laughs) potable water. Right. As fellow centrists here, let's piss some people off on the fringes. Why don't we? (laughs) What is the scariest and or misguided economic rhetoric you hear from both sides of the political faction, left and right? Well, one that they share, every once in a while, the left and the right will converge. And when they agree on something, you know, it's probably completely insane. (laughs) And the one that scares me right now that's just not getting much attention is the fact the federal debt is blowing up, which doesn't mean that we shouldn't borrow to spend on things that are productive for future generations and so on. But at some point, we have to wrestle with the fact that our debt is out of control. The entitlement programs that we have are unaffordable. We're leaving a growing bill to future generations. That's all just math. But the left and the right have converged. The right has this elegant, if completely wrong, belief that if you cut taxes, you can actually raise government revenues. The, the, laugh the laughter curve. curve. Yeah. Right. And my very conservative colleague, Andrew Samwick, in the econ department says, terrific. Then it looks like we need to cut taxes more because the deficits keep going up. You know, and like, why don't we cut taxes to zero? And then we'll have no, oh, wait, then we'll have no revenues at all. Like it, again, there's a grain of truth there. If you've got a terribly inefficient tax code, you can actually raise more revenue by cutting tax rates. But for the most part, if you cut taxes, you may generate economic growth, but you're not going to get more government revenue. And then on the left, you've got modern monetary theory, which effectively says we can just print money to an unlimited extent and we don't need to worry about it at all which I think the people of maybe Zimbabwe or Venezuela might disagree with, or most of South America at some point in the 1980s, 90s. So both of them are arguing what is effectively a terribly irresponsible position that we can kind of spend or cut taxes to an unlimited extent and give ourselves everything that we want without having any impact on the future. And there's just nothing about finance that suggests that's true in the long run. Along those lines, how do you feel about multi-trillion dollar relief packages and infrastructure bills, and how will we pay for these? I have complicated thoughts about this. They do make sense. Infrastructure makes sense. Again, the devil is in the details. You you write a big bill in Congress, and suddenly infrastructure becomes (laughs) golf carts. Hey, I need one of those. (laughs) Right? So I actually spent a couple years in Chicago working with a nonprofit that did a lot of infrastructure kinds of recommendations. And there clearly are infrastructure investments that have profound benefits. A lot of them are not very sexy, by the way. A lot of our sewers and water treatment plants were built right after World War II. There was a spurge of building there. And those things have reached the end of their lives and they need to be replaced. And you're not going to wake up every morning and say, wow, I'm so excited that we have a new water treatment plant. But it's important because if you don't, then your water might look like Flint or it's going to flood. And you know, so you got to do that. stuff. So I believe in principle in the idea of borrowing to spend on infrastructure investment that's not wasteful and so on. Again, devil in details. I also believe in what is really just standard macroeconomic theory, which is that when your economy takes a big hit for some shock related reason, you want to run a deficit. 
because you don't want to be cutting taxes in a way that will just expedite a bad economic trend. If people are spending less, you don't also want the government to spend less because then more businesses will close. People will spend less. You just get into a 1930s kind of cycle. But of course, both of those things presuppose a healthy starting point that when the economy is strong, you've run surpluses and you use those surpluses to pay off the debt that you accumulated when the economy was weak or you run surpluses and you pay off the debt on the investments that made you more productive in the present. And we haven't done that. So we're in the unfortunate place of running large deficits for bad reasons, which then make it harder to run deficits for good reasons in the present. And, you know, I suspect that on net, the bipartisan infrastructure bill that's going to looks like it's going to make its way through is probably a good thing for us, but it'd be a much better thing if we hadn't run budget deficits in most of the years since World War II. From conservative and progressive administrations alike. Oh, absolutely. They just run deficits in different ways. Conservatives tend to pretend that defense spending isn't government spending. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't figured out that math. It's a a check. You write. It's funded by taxpayers. That doesn't count because it's for a strong America. Well, it does count. You're spending it. Right, right. And they also obviously like their tax cuts, which is to say that they're going to not make any. They talk a lot about spending cuts, but make almost none. I mean, when the Republicans have been in charge, they didn't touch entitlement reform. They like to talk about it when Democrats are in charge. And of course, Democrats never profess to care a lot about tax cuts and like social spending, like entitlement programs and talk a lot about making them more generous without talking about fixing the solvency of the ones that we already have. So, yes, oh, this is a, you know, there's a documentary called IOUSA, and the best line in it was Americans like to tax like libertarians and spend like socialists. That's our bipartisan <laughs> approach here. It's like, you get your tax cuts, I get my spending, and neither one of us will talk about making the ledger balance. So, the Centrist Manifesto is a call for reason in government and for compromise in government. How could we possibly see that come to fruition? Oh, I hope we don't end it out that that heavy sigh. There are a lot of things that we need to do. There are some process things we need to do, which is to say that even if we leave all of our divergent views in place, which I think we should, like there's nothing unhealthy about differences of opinion, but can we change the system in a way that those differences of opinion are able to be harnessed into some constructive path forward. So, for example, I started a group called Unite America that's an outgrowth of the centrist project. And at present, we're focusing most of our attention on ranked choice voting and independent redistricting. And our theory of change is that each of these things tends to push power towards the center. So let's think about independent redistricting for a minute. This is a remedy for gerrymandering. So in many states, the state legislature gets to draw the state legislative boundaries and they do it in such a way that they maximize the number of seats that they win. And by the way, this is another one of these things. Republicans and Democrats both do it. They complain about when they're out of power and then they suddenly find peace with it when they're in power. I mean, there's, you know, 
but but the effect is that there's not really elections there's primaries right and you tend to get the most extreme of either party in those seats as opposed to having a mix of relatively balanced people who reflect the population this is exactly this is exactly right so let's say that you ruthlessly gerrymander a state like pennsylvania you create these safe blue and in some cases safe red seats And what that means, and this is the part that people don't think about, they just get incensed about that first part, is that, okay, now you're in a safe red seat. You're never going to lose to a Democrat. Who are you going to lose to? You're going to lose to a more extreme Republican. And if I'm in a safe blue seat, I'm only going to lose to a super progressive. So what does that mean when we get to Congress? It means I can't possibly compromise with the other party because then I'll get primaried by my own part. And by the way, you know, you and I are both old enough to remember the era when primary was not yet a verb. Right. But it's, you'll get primaried. So the gerrymandering, by creating safe seats, makes the primary elections the ones that matter. And who votes in primaries? It's only partisan members in closed states. It is the most extreme of those party members who actually show up. So you can have these races where, you know, six or eight percent of the electorate are determining a primary outcome. And that's the person who ends up going to Congress. So, you know, we think that by creating more competitive elections, those folks have to speak to a larger and more diverse set of voters and that their behavior will reflect that when they're in Congress. Let's tackle a few economic issues that come up one by one and see what a reasonable centrist policy might be. If you had a magic wand, how would you bolster the breadth and depth of human capital in the United States? So first, I would just let's look at the data. And the data suggests that the place we can make the most difference, particularly for those folks born into disadvantaged circumstances, is early childhood education. Like what we've learned around the brain science is that the brain is so much is done between birth and age three in terms of your brain development. If you have adverse experiences, your brain kind of goes on permanent fight or flight and it then becomes more difficult to concentrate in school and so on. So these early years, like zero to three, are the ones not just to determine you know, how you function as a three-year-old, but also the productivity of all your subsequent schooling. So if you have poor childhood experiences, then all the money we spend on your K through 12 education is also going to be less efficient. You think about it like if we don't teach you to read, then all the reading classes in third grade are just bouncing off of you. So I would certainly direct resources towards early childhood education. I think it's a little easier to build a political coalition around that because it's certainly hard to blame an 18-month-old for not working hard enough while you're poor because you, you, know, you didn't work hard enough as a 10-month-old. Right? So I think that's where – and I would probably move away, away from things like free college where the data suggests this is mostly just a huge subsidy to middle and upper class families, I would move resources down to younger people and start there, both because the research suggests that's where it will have the most impact. And also because I think you can build the broadest political coalition there. 
You talked earlier about, uh, I believe you mentioned this, but it's certainly something that comes up in your book, but you talk about one of the concepts in the books around money and economics is unintended consequences. And coincidentally, while I'm reading your book, I'm on vacation and our flight is routed through Seattle, home of the $17 minimum hourly wage. (laughs) Is it an accident that the McDonald's and SeaTac had five big screen ordering kiosks instead of five extra employees to take my order? Oh, it's not an accident at all. And you could have predicted that if you just traveled to Japan 20 years earlier, right? Why Japan? Well, Japan is a place that for demographic reasons and because there's very little immigration, you have a dwindling population and particularly a very low number of younger workers. So Japan 20 years ago started moving towards labor-saving types of devices. Japan is the home of the giant vending machine where you can buy like clothes and electronics and other things from a vending machine. Why? Because labor is really expensive. I went to a restaurant in Japan where there was only one employee, the guy cooking the food. I went to the wall. I ordered on the wall, put in my credit card, got a little slip of paper, gave it to the cook, and he gave me the food. Well, It stands to reason that if labor is scarce or expensive, obviously those things are related, and you're in a country with tremendous technological prowess, which we are, then if you make labor more expensive and not more productive, then of course we're going to substitute capital for labor. And of course, we've lived through it. We have phone trees and we have self-pay kiosks and now we have scanners. And so, yes, if you make labor too expensive, you're not going to make those people rich. You're going to make them unemployed. And you can't will a middle class into existence by mandating minimum wage. You cannot. You can help a little. So I'm not averse to small increases in the minimum wage, in part because I'm also a big supporter of the earned income tax credit, which is a different way of subsidizing workers' wages through the tax code so that if you go out and get a job and it only pays you $9 and you're working full time and you have kids, you can't support your family on that wage. But of course, if we make your minimum wage $18, you might lose your job. So instead, what we do is you go, you work, you get, you earn your $9 an hour. And then when you fill out your tax return, you actually get what is effectively a negative income tax, which ironically was invented by Milton Friedman, <laughs> the most libertarian in the Chicago. Why? Because Milton Friedman didn't like the minimum wage, did actually feel a lot of compassion for people who were less well off, but just said, don't mess up the market in the process of helping those people and let them work as much as they can and then supplement the wages that will have a less distortionary impact on the labor market than coming up with the minimum wage. And so I said, I would, The problem with the earned income tax credit is some employers, because they know that their employees will get a subsidy through the tax code, might be able to pay them less. Or you get the case of like Walmart, where they can pay their employees not so much because their employees are Medicaid eligible and other government benefits. So I'm not averse to raising the minimum wage on those kinds of employers who are effectively getting cheaper workers than they otherwise would have because of the government support that we're providing. But it certainly isn't going to look like a $17 minimum wage. What about universal basic income? Isn't that the humane thing to do? One could argue that it's terribly inhumane. So we had a speaker at Dartmouth whose name I've forgotten, who had worked with Mitt Romney, was Mitt Romney's policy advisor, who made just a 
devastating critique of the universal basic income. And the reason is that what we know about work is that it does two things. One is it provides income. That's what everybody focuses on. The second is that it provides a sense of worth, connection, social support, and other things. If you read Deaths of Despair by Angus Deaton and Ann Case, the subtle point they make is that the reason the white working class is killing themselves at an alarming rate through opioids, suicide, and alcoholism is not just that they've lost jobs to trade and to technology, but that when they lost those jobs, they lost their identity as Americans. And their they, they then withdrew from marriage, they withdrew from religious communities and became untethered. And what Case and Deaton would argue and what the fellow whose name I can't remember would argue is if you just give people universal basic income, you do not replace that sense of worth. Instead, you're saying kind of, yeah, you can't really participate in the society. So kind of take this money and go away. It's kind of like a pat on the head and that it will not deal with that psychological hollowness. So I am very concerned that a UBI is our step in the wrong direction. Granted, this is exact opposite end of the spectrum, right? But when I made some money at Facebook, I quit my job and just figured I have enough money. Why would I work? And that's great for three to six months. And then you're like, who the hell am I? What do I do with like, there's got to be more to life than playing golf. Right. And there's a reason Supreme Court justices who I think get a pension for life and could write a book. Like, there's a reason that they work into their 80s. It's like, this is what I do. I have a, one of my college friends. Her father is still practicing law and writing short stories. He's 87. So, yes, I think if we should we provide a basic safety net? Yes. But I'd much prefer to do it with a less tattered healthcare network so that if you get sick, you have a place to go. I don't think that's going to eat away at your sense of being with what we do with food safety. We got a lot more we can do on housing. We should come back to where the left and the right are both kind of totally wet on housing and do those kinds of things. But at the end of the day, my goal is to have everybody who can be in the labor force, not in a punitive kind of way. I and mean, sometimes conservatives say like, if you want to get your benefits, you have to work much more as a kind of, that's just what makes humans human. Right. And unites us as a country if we're all showing up to do. Oh yeah. Do you work. know, I think and there is a lot more sympathy for people who are working 40 hours a week and not being able to raise a family. than there would be, for people taking the UBI, retiring early and living, you know, off of what will feel like the rest of our work. So we talked about human capital and you were talking about human capital from childhood up. There's also people who are displaced from work due to either immigration or free trade. What is a practical way to keep those people participating in the economy? And don't say just learn to code. <laughs> yeah. So this is one well, first of all, if either one of us comes up with this, we'll win the Nobel Prize. This is the trillion-dollar question. Literally. Economists have gotten it terribly wrong because we, and I include myself in this because I'm a strong proponent of trade, kind of waved this magic wand, and the magic wand said, not wrongly, that the gains from trade so far exceed the losses that all we need to do is take some of the gains and redirect them to the losers. Those are the people whose plants have closed down and whose communities are gone and so on. But then we didn't really specify how we were going to do it, which is your question. And 
the things that politicians say on the campaign trail, like job training. Well, the data on job training are horrific. It's really hard to take a 55-year-old former miner or poultry worker or assembly line worker and, as you said, make them a coder or design jet engines or do anything where they're gross in the job. In fact, some of the data on job training suggests that it actually diminishes your earnings. <laughs> How can you send someone to a program and they come out less productive than they went in? And the answer is because you've actually taken them out of the labor force and being labor force experience is better than the training that you were purporting to do. Jim Heckman is a University of Chicago economist. He has won the Nobel Prize. He has become, he's in the Milton Friedman legacy. This is not a bleeding heart liberal, but Heckman has become a big proponent of early childhood education, which we talked about earlier, because he started his career working on job training, became so discouraged by the outcomes and said, look, we just got to push resources down earlier and earlier. But that doesn't answer the question you asked, which is what do you do about the transition? I think probably if I were to offer a slightly better argument than job training, I would say our community colleges have the potential to play that role. Four-year colleges, liberal arts are not going to turn somebody from a mine worker to a coder. But if you build a community college system that is nimble and is attuned to the kinds of places where we need new workers, logistics management, and so on, and can meet people with the skills that they have, that that is probably our best hope for retraining folks away from the jobs that are disappearing and into the places where there's more growth, more demand. Well, I got off the subject as we got more into the sort of the specific issues, but we were talking about redistricting as a way to bring people back and or redrawing districts objectively, as opposed to from the state legislatures controlled by one party or the other. What's another way we can bring America back toward a more reasonable centrist political dialogue and government, all, specifically yeah, the so, government? Yeah. So we're also supporting ranked choice voting. For those who may not be familiar with it, the idea is in a pure system, first you get rid of primaries entirely. So Alaska has just done this. It's kind of a twofer. Instead, you have just one first round election for all candidates. And as crazy as that may sound, it's probably like every school council election you were ever in. <laughs> right? We, we have to remind ourselves how stupid and crazy the primaries are. It's just that we're used to them. Imagine a school council election where the principal says, yeah, the way we're going to do this is the band is going to nominate one candidate and the football team will nominate another. You're like, wait a minute, what about all the people who aren't the band or the football team? It's like, well, then you'll just have to pick who they nominate. Like That's crazy. So they pick two candidates who are broadly unrepresentative of any other body than the band and the football team and says to the rest of the school, hey, pick from those two. That's crazy. So in a pure ranked choice system, you have a first round election with People can self-identify as Republicans, Democrats, Independents, Greens, whatever they want. The top four or five vote-getters advance to the second round, and you could have four Republicans and one Democrat. You could have three Independents, one Democrat, one Republican. It's just the top four or five vote-getters. And then in round two, you rank your choices. And there are a lot of very elegant things about this. So the way it works procedurally is... If one person gets a majority of all the first place votes, he or she wins. We're done. If not, whoever got the fewest number of votes is eliminated. 
And the people who supported that person now get their second choice. So that becomes a first choice vote. And again, we see if we have a majority and you do that until somebody gets a majority. Imagine we had ranked choice voting in 2000 when Ralph Nader's running, that Florida does it, for example. Some people would have voted for Nader in the first round. He didn't win. He didn't actually even get a meaningful number of votes, but he got enough to distort the election. Nader's eliminated. We presume that most of those people support Gore. That becomes their first choice. Gore wins Florida and so on. It doesn't have to be Democrats. The same thing might have happened when Perot was running and presumably took more votes away from George H.W. Bush. But there's some nice things about this. One is it certainly allows for more political competition. You can't run now as an independent or as a Green Party member or as a libertarian because everybody's worried that you'll skew the outcome. You're not going to win. You'll just pull votes away from the Democrat or from the Republican. And therefore, you'll get no support, even if, by the way, most people might want to support an independent. So it gets rid of the spoiler problem and therefore opens the arena for more competition. But it also encourages every candidate in the race to run a much more collegial race to say, look, I want you to be my first choice. But I'm also, you know, I'm listening to all of you Green Party folks and I care about climate change and vote for you know, the Green Party candidate first, but make me second, right? You know, because here are the things that I share with that candidate or vote for the Libertarian first. I don't think he's going to win, but I also care about keeping labor markets robust. And, you know, I'm a friend of liberty, so make me your second choice. So you start to get, you saw this in New York City, candidates actually supporting pieces of other candidates' reform. Like, when was the last time we heard that? And you get a a more civil race, more coalition building. And I would argue that gives you a winner with majority support by definition, but also who has taken the best ideas from the rest of the field quite deliberately. Wrapping up here shortly, but since we're on the topic of elections, what should a practical person who has a moderate degree of concern for election safety, but also empathetic and the desire for as many people who are qualified to vote, vote. What should we be thinking about the voting rights issues that are You know, in the this news is right a now? perfect example of something that has been so demagogued by both sides, right? So start with just a set of core principles. We should not deliberately make it harder for anybody to vote. But is it okay to ask for identification? I can't buy a bottle of wine without my driver's Yes, so I think the second principle is we should also demand a modicum of safety. And by the way, just because there hasn't been an election security problem in the past doesn't mean there won't be one in the future. So like this whole line of argument that like there's never been any vote fraud, therefore it's not a problem. Well, you know, maybe there'll be vote fraud. Right. So I think a second principle is we should ask for a reasonable degree of safety. And, you know, those two principles intersect, which is okay. If we demand an ID and personally, I think it's, entirely reasonable to ask somebody for some ID, then we should also make it as easy as possible for somebody to get the requisite ID, right? Like, do you need a driver's license? No, some people don't drive. If you don't have a driver's license, here is a simple process to get an ID that will allow you to vote. Let's just do more of those kinds of things Should we ban voting on Sunday? No, because that's deliberately engineered to exclude African-Americans who vote around church-going behavior. So just those two principles alone 
would probably get most reasonable people to agree with some package that is inclusive of all voters who want to cast a vote, but also incorporates a reasonable degree of safety and security that's consistent with the safety and security that we see everywhere else in our lives. You're far too reasonable, Charlie. This is... (laughs) And this is why I just walk around angry at the world all the time. I'm noticing that recently that you pissed more people off with sort of moderated, thoughtful posts on Facebook than you do with extreme <laughs> posts. Like with an extreme post, you'll only piss off 50% of your friends, but yeah. with something in the middle, you'll piss off 85%. Well, you know, we know that about movements that people always go after the moderate members of their own side first, right? Like if you're a communist, you want to kill the Trotskyites before you want to kill the capitalists, right? You want to purify the movement. And that's you know, right. I think that's just so self-defeating for anybody who really cares about change. I mean, I know we're wrapping up here, but the one thing I say to my students all the time is you tell me whether you want to make noise or whether you want to make a difference. Cause it's really easy to make noise. You can draft a bill that's, pure and makes you feel great and it is never going to get passed ever but if you want to make a difference then you build a coalition you follow the data you make some compromises that are not inimical to your principles and you know what you're going to get to a better place what makes you hopeful my wife makes me hopeful she's just the most optimistic person i have ever met we've been married nearly 30 years and honestly she says like when we lived in Chicago, our car got broken into. So we go out and you're standing and the window's broken. You feel so violated. And her first comment was, isn't it great that it's been so long since our car was broken into last time? <laughs> like, really? That's what you're making out of this situation? Like, I mean, so I live with an optimistic person, which just keeps me from going to the dark place and staying there. Other, my students make me optimistic, particularly the public policy students. So as much as we talk about woke students and everything, that is a vocal minority. The vast, vast, vast majority of students I interact with are thoughtful, kind, smart, deeply interested in the future. You know, I would pull any one of my policy students out of a hat and send them to Congress. And I think they would do a better job than the folks responding to the incentives that we've created for members of Congress. So that makes me hopeful. Also, I just love looking at people who are quietly making a difference. We just had a woman come speak to our class named Paula Wolf in Chicago. She's been doing criminal justice reform you know, for 20 years, long before George Floyd, before even Michelle Alexander wrote the new Jim Crow. Like the rest of the world discovered what Paula discovered 20 years ago, which is if you want to make society better, safer, focus on better criminal justice. By the way, she's a former Republican. She served as chief of staff to two different Republican governors. Why should that be inimical to making a fairer safe? You know, she cares about public safety. And in fact, the first thing she did was get the prosecutors on board. And then she went about eliminating redundancies and taking away discretion from judges who happen to be particularly punitive, getting juveniles out of the adult system because they get better outcomes in the juvenile system and so on. And You know, she's just worked tirelessly on that work, including with state Senator Barack Obama back in the day. Right. And so those kinds of people in lots of different areas. And you think about what we did with the vaccine. Right. You know, so forget the vaccine hesitancy for a minute. The fact that we created the vaccine in the time that we did, that's just a wonderful achievement. So there's a lot of great stuff. I think it's just about changing the incentives 
in our system so that we can take better advantage of these stunning resources and assets that we have. Speaking of resources and assets, do you feel rich? Oh yeah. I feel like crazy rich. Certainly by any objective measure, like if we look at the 7 billion people on the planet, 7 billion people on the planet, I'm closer to Jeff Bezos than I am to the modal person on the planet. So yes, by that objective reason. Also, there's really only one thing I want in my life that I can't afford, and that's my own plane. (laughs) And I I think I would be ambivalent about the carbon footprint of having my own plane anyway, so it would probably make me feel guilty. So which isn't to say that I'm like, anywhere near Jeff Bezos, but in terms of my basic needs, I feel crazy rich. And to go back to something we discussed earlier, I hope to be one of those people who's still working when I'm 87. You know, if my health holds out, you know, my knees are terrible, but I, you know, I'm not running for a living. Um, really, I feel my greatest luxury is doing work that I enjoy. There's a little too much of it. I wouldn't mind doing a little less. But yeah, I feel crazy rich. Okay, everybody, buy Charlie's book so that he doesn't have to connect through the West Lebanon airport anymore when he wants to do his international travel. He can just fly direct. <laughs> I'm flying into the West Lebanon airport next Wednesday, so uh, we're not there yet. <laughs> Charlie, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work? At uh, charleswheelan.com or nakedeconomics.com. They'll both get you there. Unite America is the organization that I started that works on a lot of these political reforms. Cool. We'll put links to those in the show notes. Charlie, thank you so much for your time. This is a great conversation. Terrific. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much to Charlie Whelan. Love that conversation. And the links to his website and Unite America are in the show notes. Let's jump to the takeaways. The number one one I get is to be hopeful for the future, that the students that Charlie is teaching, who will be our age 20, 30 years from now, are bright, motivated, reasonable people that he is confident that the people he sees in his public policy class are the kinds of people that we would want in leadership positions in the future. That warms my soul, as we say. Number two, be a part of the solution. Try to catch yourself when you find yourself trading in outrage and getting super extreme politically in social media or in conversations with your friends. Let's all try to understand each other better, be empathetic and help understand where others might not be getting the full picture and most importantly, ask yourself, what might I not be getting here? Read, read different sources, maybe read the centrist manifesto. It's a really good look at where each party has a little bit that they're right about. Each party has a little bit that they're wrong about. What can we do to bring those two parts that are right together and to fruition? Lastly, ask yourself, Are we getting the politicians that we deserve? Okay, maybe we do deserve them based on what we've allowed to happen to our political rhetoric, but don't we as a country deserve better politicians? Don't you think we could have done better than the last two presidents that we've gotten? Speaking of Trump and Biden in particular, did anybody really, really want to vote for Joe Biden? Really? Really? I'm not to say he's a bad guy, but like, did you really want to vote? Is that the best candidate we could have come up with? Did people really want to vote for Donald Trump? Or did they want to vote for the fact that the other side wasn't hearing them, that they were being vilified by the other party, that they were being ignored by an economy that believed in the intellectual benefit of free trade without worrying about what happens to the poor people who do manual labor or build things with their hands in middle America? I think we deserve better politicians and that the reason why we're not getting them is for the structure of the political system that Charlie described. 
We deserve better politicians who will work with the other side to find the best solutions to complicated problems that our country has right now. And if we won't vote for anybody that will compromise, we're just going to continue to spiral off the cliff of polarity, and it's not going to be pretty. Remember the first takeaway, be hopeful for the future. (laughs) Do that too, in addition to let's find better politicians. All right. Hey, thanks for staying all the way to the end. Love that you found this interesting enough to do so. If you did, please share this episode and the Crazy Money Show with your friends. It means a lot. Also, take a minute to rate and review the show. We'll be back the next few weeks with several great interviews. Until that time, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.